Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Amen. Good morning. All right, if you have a Bible, open it to Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10, as you're finding that, praise the Lord for Logan and Molly and Lilius Copley. Thankful for just their partnership in the gospel, their membership here at this church, and thankful for a church that sends out its best and brightest to the nations. As you're finding Mark 10, and I'm going to read a little bit out of Mark 9 before we get into our main text in Mark chapter 10. Let me ask you a question. What what does it mean, do you think, to be great? And have you ever really been around somebody or something that is truly great? I think for myself, the time in my life when I was around the greatest greatness was when I was 13 years old, and it was 1984, and my dad had saved up and took our family to the Olympics, the Summer Olympics in Los Angeles in 1984. And we got to go to the gold medal basketball game where Michael Jordan and many other collegians, this was the last time that we had a team full of just college players win the gold medal. And we got to watch the United States team beat Spain by about 40 points. It was glorious. And then I got to be in the Los Angeles Coliseum when Carl Lewis, some of you may remember that name, probably the greatest track and field athlete maybe of all time, won four gold medals. I was there at the final race for the 100 meters and the 200 meters and the long jump and then the 4 by 100. We got to see all of those gold medals. It's the greatest athletes in the world. And this, this, this huge crowd of people celebrating victory. And I remember, too, the, the agony of defeat when Mary Decker, who was this female distance runner for the United States, probably the greatest female distance runner in recent American history up until that point anyway, was running in this race. I can't remember the distance, but she was running against another female runner who was the greatest, kind of the other, her, her rival at the time, a South African woman by the name of Zola Budd, who you may remember used to run barefoot. And, well, those of you that are, you have to be 50 or above to remember Zola Bud. And Zola Bud tripped accidentally, Mary Decker, in like the final lap of that race. And the American favorite, who was the greatest, tripped and didn't even finish the race. And what a tragedy that was. There's this thing that's wired in us that glories in winning and being great and agonizes when we lose. Why is that? I think it's because we are wired for glory. We're wired to be great. But what is greatness? Where we go awry is because of sin, because we live in this fallen world, we have a miswired version of greatness. So what is greatness? What is biblical greatness? What does it mean to truly be great? That's the question I want us to consider as we look at Mark chapter 10. I think sometimes we misunderstand what greatness is, and I trust that this passage will help us to understand it more biblically. Well, before we read Mark chapter 10, let's let's, let's look at just a few scenes in Mark chapter 9. Let me just give you a, a, a sense of the flow of the context of this passage. 
Mark 9 is this passage about the transfiguration of Jesus where he is glorified in front of the eyes of Peter, James, and John, three of his disciples. He's, they see him in this, this glorified, transfigured state. And then he heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And then he, Jesus starts to speak about his death and resurrection. So there's a contrast between the glory of the transfigured Christ and then Jesus wanting to also teach his disciples that the way that they will enter into this glory is through his humble death and ultimate resurrection. And then in verse 33 of Mark chapter 9, it's left the disciples with a yet-to-be-fully-developed understanding of what greatness is. So let's, let's read a few verses in Mark 9 to give us a sense of their mindset and their misunderstanding at this point of what greatness is. So verse 33 This is after Jesus has been transfigured, healed a boy, and has taught about the death and resurrection that awaits him. And in verse 33, it says, They came to Capernaum, and when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? I love when Jesus asks questions like that. It's like as if he didn't know. He knows. He's just trying to draw out honesty from them. Verse 34, But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. So think about that. It's like two kids, you know, or just schoolyard kids talking about who's the fastest or who's the strongest. They're arguing with one another about who's the greatest. In verse 35, he sat down and called the 12 and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be made last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one such child in my name receives me and whoever receives me receives not me but him who sent me. So with that as a background, let's go to Mark chapter 10, and let's look at verses 35 through 45. And I want us to work through this passage and to reorder, rewire our hearts and our minds with a biblical understanding of what it means to be great. I think there are many things that fight against that in our culture. So let me pray before I read this text as we work through it to help us, ask the Lord to help us. Father, thank you for your kindness to us. Thank you that we can start to gather again. We pray for our brothers and sisters and friends who are not yet here for whatever reason, maybe not feeling well, maybe just not yet ready to gather. We pray your grace would be extended to all of us, those that are in this room, those that are gathered in living rooms, those that will come tonight. Lord, encourage us by your word. Make us more like Christ. For those that trust in you, make us more like your son. And for those that do not yet trust in Jesus, I pray for your sovereign grace to do what only you can do, that you would give life and faith and repentance to dead hearts and make them alive for your glory. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's start in verse 35 and read a little bit and comment along the way. Mark 10, verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him, and they're still in this mindset. Now listen to this question. Came up to him, to Jesus, and said to him, listen to this, teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Well, at least they just put it out there, didn't they? Verse 36, and he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? I wish, you know, we only have the written word. Wouldn't it be wonderful to see the expression on Jesus' face as he's responding to the question in verse 35? What do you want me to do for you? Which, by the way, at the end of Mark chapter 10, there's a scene where Jesus heals this blind man, Bartimaeus, 
who's crying on the roadside for mercy, and Jesus comes upon him, and Jesus asks him the same question, what do you want me to do for you? And I wonder, just it's the same phrase, the exact same sentence, totally different context. Here Jesus is asking these brazen, self-absorbed, glory-seeking disciples, what do you want me to do for you? In verse 37, they continue in their honesty. They said to him, grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in glory. All right. Okay, now we have it out there. So what's going on here? James and John, I think we're clearly really representative of the rest of the disciples. We see bits and pieces of this through the rest of the Bible. They were looking for the kingdom of God to come immediately and now. We, we see hints of this in places like Luke chapter 19 where the disciples, when Jesus is speaking, they, said they, they wanted it all now and they wanted it all here. And we read after the resurrection in the first chapter of Acts, where they were really focused on a kind of political power. They, they asked Jesus, in fact, in Acts chapter 1, are you going to restore now the power to Israel? Because remember, they are under Roman captivity. And so the, although they were, in a sense, understanding that Jesus was their Savior and their Redeemer and their Messiah, they were still thinking in terms of a kind of earthly political greatness. They didn't have this sense of this eternal, spiritual, ultimate mission of Jesus, which was to restore not just ethnic, political Israel, but to gather all of spiritual Israel, all those that would trust in Jesus to himself for the kingdom of heaven, not just for an earthly, temporary kingdom of Israel. And so they're still in that mindset. And we read in verse 34 where they just said, hey, we want to be great. They're really vying, in a sense, for cabinet positions in Jesus' new administration. And they, they sort of, I think, sense, I think this is implied in the text, they understand that they're being a little sneaky. They're being a little sneaky because they kind of, it seems like they, just the two go to him, these two brothers, Sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, they come up and they're saying, hey, Jesus, look, we're, we're sort of, we're angling for the inside track. They're the special contingent who understands Jesus better than anybody else. And they are seeing the, the, what's going to happen in the future, what they anticipate, and they are lobbying for their position. They're, they're, they're just like lobbyists in some political capital sneaking down the hallway asking the powerful politician to secure their position in the future administration. And just a few thoughts about this text and how it applies to us before we move on to verse 38. We are much like this too, aren't we? I mean, we, we, I mean, we can almost sort of giggle at verse 35 where they say, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. Now we have, a, probably most of us, have a little bit more couth. We, the same question sometimes rests in our heart, but we're a little bit more polished than the sons of thunder were in their day. We, we, we have that on our heart, but we're still often asking the same question. Christians, even mature and seasoned ones, are prone to slip into this kind of mentality, this kind of pragmatism in their relationship with Jesus. It's easy for us to scoff at the prosperity gospel preachers in their silly suits and their lavish TV sets and their goofy, gelled-up hair. 
but, but we're vulnerable, aren't we? We're vulnerable to an even more subtle kind of false prosperity gospel. That they want riches and earthly things, but we bring our, our correct theology and our sanctification, which we feel is in a pretty good place, or our spiritual disciplines that we've been keeping on track with for the past few days or weeks, and we bring it to the Lord, and we think similarly that God owes me. That's what we do. And we say, along with the disciples here in verse 35, Jesus, I want you to do whatever I want you to do for me. I think much of the unhappiness in the world and much of the unhappiness and discontent amongst Christians is because we come to Jesus for the wrong reasons. And friends, let's just admit it, we are all prone to this. When we don't get what we want and our lives are crushed, this reveals that we haven't really come to Jesus for Jesus. We've come to Jesus to be a kind of personal genie in our own little wish bottle. And when we do that, we're, we're really living, we're living in like the script of the movie Aladdin more than we're living in the world of the Bible. And we're all, we're all prone to that, aren't we? So let's not, let's not scoff too, too loudly at the disciples. We come to Jesus saying, what do you want me to do for you? And we too, I think as Americans, let me just say this, as people that live in a nation that is militarily great, economically great, culturally influential in the world, we are prone to focus on a kind of nationalistic greatness, which may have some virtues. But spiritually speaking, it can wire us in the absolute opposite direction that biblical greatness calls us to. So let's be careful when we rally behind political slogans or candidates that unwittingly may be tuning our hearts in to a kind of temporal greatness that will wean our hearts away from what the Bible calls greatness. Let's keep reading in verse 38 through 40. Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. <laughs> and Jesus said to him, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. So let's stop and pause and make sure we understand what's going on in these three verses. Jesus essentially tells him in verse 38, look, you are way over your head. You don't know what you are asking, he tells them. And then he asks them a couple questions. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? What's Jesus saying there? The cup that Jesus is speaking about is a reference really to his crucifixion. It's to the work that he must complete on the cross. In fact, we see Jesus referring to the cup in this metaphoric sense at the night that he was betrayed and that he's praying in the garden and he's praying to the Lord in, in his incarnation, Jesus the man is praying to the Father, Lord, let this cup pass for, from me. He's not talking about a literal physical cup. He's talking about the cup 
of the cross that he will endure. And he's asking them, do you guys know what the pathway to greatness is? Do you know what it means to be part of this kingdom? And he's saying to these disciples in their ignorance and their foolishness, do you, are you able to endure this? And when he speaks about his baptism, he speaks similarly at other times in the gospels, not about his physical earthly water baptism at the hands of his cousin John in the early parts of the gospel. But this baptism is a sense in a kind of Roman 6 sense, a baptism into death. And what does, baptize, what does baptism symbolize? It's not just a strange ritual that Christians do. It is a picture of how we go down under the water. And what does water represent in the Bible primarily, especially in the Old Testament? It represents the wrath of God, the judgment of God. And so when Jesus is talking about the cup and his baptism, he's talking about the cross. And he's saying that that is the pathway to glory. That's the pathway to the kingdom. And you guys are wanting to short circuit that. And you're wanting a kind of earthly glory. You don't even know what you're asking for. And they respond brazenly in verse 39, we're able. And then Jesus says to them, listen, the cup that I drink, you will drink, and the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. And he's not saying to James and John that they're going to have to earn their own salvation on the cross or that they are going to have to die for their own sins as well. He will do that. But he is saying, he's really saying to them, he's, he's, he's giving them a kind of prophetic word about their life. And he's saying to James that you're going to die a tough death. In fact, we read about James is killed by Herod. He's, he's, he's martyred by Herod in Acts chapter 12, I believe it is. And then we know that James, or John, suffers a very difficult life. And he's saying you're going to have it hard, not because you're having it hard to redeem yourself, but because you, after my resurrection, are going to live a life of suffering like I have lived. A servant is not higher than his master. What I've been through, you will be through, go through, in a sense, as a kind of display of the sufferings of Christ to the world. And they don't even know what they're asking for. So what are some thoughts before we continue on and read the last portion? Friends, clearly, scripturally, the pathway to glory, the pathway to greatness is suffering. It was for Jesus. It will be and it must be for his people. Listen to Romans chapter 8, verse 16 and 17. The Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. We love that verse. But listen to verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided, provided, it means it's necessary, provided with the stipulation, with the requirement that we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. Friends, let's zoom out of our current situation culturally that we're facing right now. And let's see what God may be up to. Friends, we're, we're living in a time of pandemic. We're living in a time of racial and political tension like none of us have probably ever experienced before. It may be few of us that maybe lived way back when in the, in the World War II days. Maybe it was greater then or maybe the Civil Rights Movement. But at least for most of us, this is a time of anxiety and stress like we have never borne before. And friends, we can get in the middle of that and we can just want kind of relief to some sort of earthly comfort and greatness. But friends, beyond it all, this is, this is what God has promised that his children will go through and it is the pathway to greatness. 
This, this should not surprise us. God is doing what he has always done with his children in various ways and at various times. He is weaning his people from the world and wooing them to heaven. And listen to what he says to these two disciples who were so brazen. He really gives them a picture about what their life will look like, which will be a challenge. So just think about that in the context of greatness. Look, I want a cabinet position. I want to be in the the front car in the parade. I want pomp and circumstance. I want honor and glory. And Jesus says, you're going to have a tough life. It's going to be really, really hard. And oh, by the way, Look, sitting at the right hand, some position of glory or whatever in the kingdom, that's for, that's for the Father to decide who knows where you will be, but you will be with me. I, I read that and I think, you know, we each have a part to play. I want a kind of earthly greatness. I, I want prestige. I want honor. I, I, in a sense, I want this church to be well thought of. I want my ministry to be well thought of. I want to be well thought of personally. But, but, but this ultimate position of greatness in the kingdom is something that only the Lord determines. Verse 40, sitting in his right hand or his left hand is is for the Father to grant. The point that I take from that is that we each have our part to play. The Lord has assigned that. Know that and rest in it. Much of the discontentment in the world today is that we have this kind of idolatrous sense of what our life should look like. And when that doesn't pan out, we are spiritually depressed because we've been worshiping the idol of ourself and our own desires rather than trusting and resting in the sovereign good plan of God for our lives. And that is easy to say, and that is hard to live. Amen? For me it is anyway. Friends, there's a place, I am not saying that we shouldn't pursue excellence and pursue achievement. Praise God for people that do things like that. Praise God for people that... that, that uh, in fact, do you know that there was actually a member of Crosspoint, a former member of Crosspoint, who is now a NASA astronaut, Frank Rubio. And so a, a, a little part of Crosspoint may, may actually be in space someday. Praise God. Just think about, think about that. We take men and women, and we put them in a little metal tube, and we shoot them into space. And they, they, they rotate around the earth for a while, and then they come back. And apparently whatever they do up there, they collect rocks or air or something. I don't know. And if it, somehow it helps us, whatever, we do it. Okay? And we got doctors and scientists and people in business that are doing great things. We should pursue greatness. We should pursue excellence. Listen to what Colossians chapter 3, verse 23 and 24 says. It says, whatever you do, Paul says, work heartily as for the Lord and not for me, men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. So Paul is saying, do whatever you do and do it well and give it all that you have. So don't don't take from this text, well, God's sovereign, life's going to be hard, so I'm just going to sit on my couch and watch Netflix and eat Cheetos until Jesus comes back. That's not what this text is saying. 
It is saying, though, that God is sovereign and he has a will and a plan for the good of his kingdom and for the good of each one of his children. And where our ambition and God's sovereignty intersects is where Christian maturity resides. Listen to what Philippians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13. This is the same Paul who just wrote what we just read in Colossians 3 about striving to do whatever you do with excellence. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul says, verse 12 and 13, I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. In other words, I can be content in any situation, whether it's a pandemic, whether the markets are high or the markets are low. I can be content in every, any cultural situation, whether there is rest or comfort in our society. I can be content regardless of who wins the election in November. I can be content regardless of the size of my church. I can be content regardless of the excellence of the achievements of my children. I can be content regardless of the state of my my personal job or finances or whatever, I can be content in that because God, who loves his children, has a plan for them and he is working for their good and he is bringing them all the way home and anything they face, any cup or any baptism that they face is only serving to wean them from this world and woo them to himself. And we can rest in that. And oh, do we need to rest in that in this cultural moment that we face? Because you know what I mean? We're all, I, I think, that I, I sense that there's a kind of like-mindedness right now in the room. We're like, I, don't, I mean, if you disagree with what I'm saying, I'd, I'd like to know and we can talk about it later. But I, I think I have some consensus in the room right now. I kind of feel it. I've been doing this for a while, right? And that's easy to believe this with a bunch of other people on a Sunday. But man, it's hard to live out on a Wednesday morning when the sky is falling, isn't it? Come on now. It is for all of us. And you're looking at somebody right now and you're thinking, oh, he's a strong Christian. You may be thinking about me like, friends, 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 let me disabuse you of spiritual superstardom. It doesn't exist. All right, let's keep going. Verse 41 through 45. And when the 10 heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. <laughs> You're like, man, you cats, you snuck off trying to secure your cabinet position. And they were indignant, but they were thinking the same thing themselves. They weren't mad that James and John were pursuing some sort of worldly greatness. They were just probably mad because it wasn't their idea. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But, verse 43, it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you, here's the definition. Jesus is answering the question for us. What does it mean to be great? But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave. Of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So Jesus hasn't he answered the question for us clearly? Jesus is contrasting for his disciples the world's view of greatness 
lording your authority, being powerful, being arranging your circumstances and your times and your talents and your treasures for your benefit, for your greatness, for your acclaim, for your glory. That's the world's view of greatness. And Jesus is going 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And he's saying, this is what it means to truly be great, to be the servant of all, the slave of all. And where does this come from? It comes from one of the most beautiful, gospel-rich sentences in the whole Bible, verse 45, where he says that I, the Son of Man, I am modeling this for you. I am the greatest, and I am displaying true greatness because I have come not to, not to be served, but to serve. And how does Jesus do that? Friends, the second half of verse 45 is the gospel in many form. It says, I do this to give my life as a ransom for many. Friends, this is the heart of the gospel. This greatness that Jesus is calling us to, is calling his disciples to, it's the heart of the gospel and it's modeled in the gospel. This word ransom is so rich, we could do a sermon series on the word ransom and everything that is bound up in the meaning of that word. Jesus is saying here that he's giving his life as a ransom for many. We, understood, we understand the word ransom, right? It's a, it's a word that means payment. It's, it's a prisoner. There's, there's, somebody needs to be redeemed from a captivity. We think of it in terms of paying a ransom for somebody that maybe has been kidnapped. And bound up in this word ransom is implicit this idea that a, a debt must be satisfied. Now, who is being paid the ransom? It's very important that we understand this. That we sometimes think, well, the, the forces of evil or maybe the devil, he's got us in captivity and he needs to be paid back. Well, friends, that's not really the way the Bible presents this word ransom. The, the one that we have truly offended, the one that we are in debt to is not the forces of wickedness or evil, but it is God himself, God's holiness, and so when we see the word ransom here in the Bible, in the context of Jesus' work, we realize that Jesus is actually substituting himself between us and God, and he is paying the debt that we owe, not to ourselves, not to what we could have been, not to the enemy, not to Satan himself, but we are paying the debt, he is paying our debt to the holiness of God. That's where this beautiful word propitiation comes from that we speak of so often here that you read about in places like Romans chapter 3 and Hebrews chapter 2 and 1 John. What does the word propitiation mean? It means that Jesus substituted himself. He took our place and he bore the wrath that should have been ours, the debt that God required because of our rebellion against him, and he extinguished it. He paid it off. He drank it dry. He removed it. He took it as far as the east is from the west, and he turned our debt into grace and favor. Jesus is our ransom. He could have stood next to God and said, judge them and send them away. I'm great. They're not. But he humbled himself. He came to this earth. He took our place. He became the greatest example of a servant. He laid down his life, and he satisfied the wrath of God for us. That's the good news of the gospel. And that is where greatness is most clearly pictured in the universe. 
the greatest of all. The Psalm 145 type of greatness that we read earlier today. God is great and greatly to be praised. And God the Son came and took the wrath of God the Father. And God the Spirit makes us alive so that we can trust in the work of God the Son and be saved. And it's all service. It's all God doing. It's Him doing it for us. It's Him coming to us. It's Him serving us. And because of that great gospel, because of that great news, Jesus says, be like this. Be like me. Serve. Give yourself. This is the pathway to greatness. Trusting in me is what Jesus is saying. And counterintuitively, this this is where contentment is found. Remember we talked about how this desire for greatness will just lead us into just discontentment counterintuitively, living like this, pursuing this type of Christ-like, humble greatness by trusting in him, being made alive by him, and then, then making our lives a kind of picture of this, that's where, that's where contentment is found. The world's greatness, the world's version of greatness is a kind of master that will never be satisfied, whereas the biblical view of gra- greatness is a master who can only satisfy. I remember um, many of you maybe watched uh, this recent ESPN documentary on Michael Jordan and the Chicago Bulls and the last dance and their season. And of course, m- most of us would agree that Jordan, Michael Jordan's is great, maybe the most famous athlete in our day. And I was struck as I watched some of that, how here's this man who has achieved so much. I mean, he's a billionaire. He's the greatest basketball player who's ever lived. He is this, this, this global icon. But there was this, you can just see it in his eyes, there's this kind of discontent. And I remember years ago, after Tom Brady won a, his third Super Bowl, they were doing this interview with Tom Brady, he's a great quarterback. And he was, he was lamenting to the interviewer about how empty the aftermath of winning a Super Bowl was. And he was like, you know, is this, he was kind of like looking, almost like a spiritual question, is this all there really is? And, and, and both of these men who have achieved what the world would say is the pinnacle, the height of greatness in their spheres athletically, it's kind of like this, this, this meditation in Ecclesiastes that speaks about how mankind in his pursuit of his own vain glory, it's like they're chasing the wind. You can never actually get it. It never satisfies. It never delivers. It only demands more. You only want to win another one. You only want another billion dollars. You only want another this, another that, another whatever. And it never actually satisfies. And it is a kind of cruel, never-ending well that never quenches your thirst. And contrast that with what Jesus says about satisfaction that comes in Trusting in him. Listen to John chapter 7. Strange, beautiful verse here. Verse 37, Jesus says, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So there's this thirst. And those that thirst truly, spiritually, come to Jesus and they'll drink. And then he turns. Look at what he says now in verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. 
Now this he said about the spirit whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the spirit had not been yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So it seems like in verse 37, Jesus would say, come to me, let him, let him come to me and drink if you thirst. And it seems like Jesus would then launch into a further explanation of what it means to be truly satisfied in him. But he turns it around and says, then, then, then the consequence, he just skips forward to the consequence of really being satisfied in God is that your life now becomes less about being having your thirst quenched and all of a sudden it turns and rather than wanting the river to flow into you, the river now flows out of you in service to the world around you. Do you see that? That's what Jesus is saying here and that's what greatness is. We lose ourselves, we forget about ourselves and we give ourselves away and oh, I am terrible at that. And, and, you know, quite frankly, I think a lot of you are too. That's why I'm, that's why I'm preaching this. So what does it mean to be great? It means to give your life to the Lord in a Romans 12, 1 and 2 sort of way. You don't give your life to the Lord for salvation. You're dead. You can't give anything to him. He must give you his life. But once he gives you his life in your life, now... What does Romans 12 say? It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by the testing, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So what does it mean to be great? Give yourself to the Lord to trust in Jesus, to know him, to be satisfied in him, to find your thirst quenched in him, and then to come out of that giving yourself to others, to serving them, not to be proven right, not to argue your politics or your perspective into the ground so that everybody agrees with you and you are the one that everybody thinks knows what's going on. No, it means serving, loving, humbling, taking up a towel and a basin and washing people's feet and bearing with one another and loving one another and serving one another and knowing, knowing that Jesus will bring all of his people all the way home. As our benediction, or at least to, not benediction of the service, but of this sermon, let me read to you John Wesley's covenant prayer. It's a famous prayer of John Wesley. Many of you, I'm sure, are aware of John Wesley. He was a great English preacher and evangelist that came over from England and helped to establish the gospel in the American colonies. Much of his work was done here in Georgia. He became, along with his brother Charles and several others, the, really the, the founders of the Methodist church that we know now of today. Now, I will say that John Wesley's version of the Christian life uh, is, is a far cry, very, very different from what much of what goes on in the United Methodist Church today. And although I would disagree with John Wesley on some aspects of doctrine, he was a very fruitful brother. And in fact, they called his followers and the group of people that he was discipling Methodists because they were so it was, a, it was a pejorative term. They were so devout in their spiritual disciplines. They had a kind of method to the Christian life, which is why they called them, in a scornful way, Methodists. And it eventually became 
the Methodist denomination. But listen to this covenant prayer by John Wesley. And actually, John Wesley gathered this prayer from some English Puritans who had lived about 100 years before him. And I think it captures well the heart of Mark chapter 10 and verse 45 and how we should respond to this and how we should seek to live as truly great people in this day. Wesley says, I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you. Exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now... Glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen. Father, make these words, make these words so in my life and in the lives of my brothers and sisters here. Help us to understand that true greatness can only be found in the cross in the ransom that was paid for us in the cross. And coming out of that, Lord, we are called to give our lives away. Not to pursue political greatness or earthly greatness. Those may be good temporary endeavors for certain Christians called to certain vocations in politics or military. Thank God for people that are protecting us and are doing a great job at it. But Lord, as we live in these two kingdoms, the earthly kingdom that we live in now and the heavenly kingdom that we're citizens of, keep it clear in our minds the greatness that truly matters. And let us pursue that for your glory and our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.